This morning's passage uh, is, is pretty popular. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure most of you have at least uh, heard it or heard part of it or read it, uh, probably at a wedding or um, on some, 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 some sort of decoration. I'm sure somebody's taken some barn wood and painted this, this passage on it. Uh, this is what's called the love chapter by many, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, we'll be going through the whole chapter this morning. Uh, but this, this chapter is called the love chapter because obviously it talks about love a great deal. Uh, Paul spends the entire chapter talking about love. But many times what we don't understand is that Paul is not talking about a romantic type of love. In the Greek language, they have multiple words for different types of love. See, in the English language, we, for whatever reason, uh, we, we only have one word for love, and so I can say that I love my wife, and I can also say that I love pizza. That's a, a hope, hopefully two different types of love. Um, and, and so we, we have one word for all different types of love, but in the Greek language they have several different words for different types of, of love. And I'm sure if you've been in church long, you've done some kind of study on the different, different words for love, your brotherly love, things like that. That this word that's used here in chapter 13 is a very specific word. It's, it's agape. And I'm sure if you've been in church long, you've heard this word. It's been the name of some sort of ministry that you've been a part of, maybe, maybe or you've seen it on a t-shirt or something like that. But the word agape is this godly, self-sacrificing love. And that's what Paul was talking about. And if you look at it in context, he, he's not talking about uh, the love between a husband and a wife, however, there should be this, you know, if it is a Christian couple, it should be, there should be this agape love between them. But he's primarily talking about the love between the church as a whole and the love between believers as a whole, not just a romantic type of relationship. He's talking about the love that we should have towards one another just because we all love Jesus. Just because we're Christians, we should love one another. We should have this agape love for one another. And so this morning we're going to look at what is this kind of love? Well, what, what is this love that Paul's talking about? And before we get into 1 Corinthians 13, I want to jump to 1 John chapter 4 because John gives us a great definition of what this kind of love is. In 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. So he starts talking about love. Well, that's the same word that Paul uses. It's agape. It's the same love. So we know that we're on the same wavelength here between Paul and John. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And so John is explaining to us what this love is, and he's also saying that we should love one another. And so we, we find uh, really that there's two 
characteristics of a godly love that, that we have to understand before we can know what love is. The first is that a godly love proceeds from the knowledge and experience of Christ's atonement. The knowledge, uh, that love proceeds from the knowledge and experience of Christ's atonement. John says, uh, he said, in this, uh, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's a whole lot of theology wrapped up in that. What John is saying, he's, he's saying that this is what love is. Okay, he's painting a picture. He said, the God of the universe, the, the creator of everything, shows us what love is because His creation rebelled against Him. If you remember the Garden of Eden, God gave... Uh, Adam and Eve, one rule, and they broke that one rule. And ever since then, humanity has been cursed by sin, and we have been actively rebelling against God ever since then. Okay, we are born with a nature that causes us to choose anything other than God. We choose ourselves, we choose some other false god. We are born with a nature that chooses something other than God. We are born with a nature that rebels constantly against God, even in our good works, they're still tainted by sin. And so God has created everything, and then His creation, and not even just His creation, the part of His creation that was made in His image. Okay, we, we were, as humans, we are blessed more than any other part of His creation. Okay, um, a dog is not created in the image of God. Okay, we, we're blessed more than, than dogs. Okay, how would you like to be a tree? I don't think that'd be very fun. They don't seem to do a whole lot. Okay, we, we are blessed because we are we, we're the part of God's creation that's actually made in His image. We're made to reflect His glory, and yet that is the part of creation that rebels against Him. I mean, think about how arrogant that is. Okay, the, the, the moon... Obey God, obeys God perfectly, and it controls the tide of the ocean. Okay, the entire ocean obeys God. The sun comes up when it's supposed to, when God tells it to. The sun obeys God. The very earth that we're standing on obeys God. It rotates at just the right speed so that we uh, don't fly off of it because it doesn't go too fast. We have gravity and all this stuff in place. All of these things obey God just as they're supposed to, but you and I look at God, and we say, no, I don't really like your rules. I'm, I'm going to do it my own way. The part of creation that God blessed the most is the only part of creation that rebels against him. And John says, this is love. That God, that God that, that we rebel against, sends his son. Jesus leaves the throne of heaven to live amongst his creation and to be murdered by his creation. He says that is love. Jesus was the propitiation for our sin. What that means is, as rebels, we were owed punishment. We are owed eternal wrath. Okay, we, we serve a, a holy and righteous God, and we are about as unholy and unrighteous as you can get. And, and so we are owed this eternal punishment, but John says this is what love is. That creator God 
of the universe that we rebel against so violently. He sent his son. Jesus left the throne of heaven. He came down on earth. And he, he lived a life, a, a very poor life. He never had a place to lay his head. He was often run out of towns. And it finally ended in his murder. He was murdered by his creation. The part of his creation that he blessed the most. And John says that's what love is. He did that so that he could pay the price that we owed. He did that so that those that would believe in him could have eternal life and live through him. John says that's what love is. Love is Jesus leaving the throne of heaven. Love is Jesus living a life as a, most of the time as an outcast. Yes, there were times where he was popular. He, he lived as a poor man. He, he was betrayed by his friends. He was abandoned by his friends. And he was murdered by the people that he came to rescue. His own did not receive him. And John says, that's what love is. God has nothing to gain from saving us. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking on, on Mars Hill. And he says, this God that I speak of, this God of Israel, he is not served by the hands of men. What that means is we don't add anything to him, and we don't take anything away from him. If we rebel against him, okay, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't depreciate who God is. And, and if we have faith in him, if we love him, if we serve him, that doesn't build him up in any way. He's totally self-sufficient. And so when, when Jesus died on that cross, when he paid the price for us, he gave up everything to receive nothing in return. Okay, we don't add anything to God. And you may think, well, well that just, that's, I don't like to hear that. I, I like to think that you know, God is getting something out of, out of this relationship. Well, he's not. You don't add anything to God when you serve him. But guess what? That's what love is. That's what grace is. Grace is, is Jesus giving up his life, laying down his life, suffering our wrath, knowing that he's not going to get anything in return. He does it simply out of love, and John says that's what love is. That's the type of sacrificial love, knowing that we're making a huge sacrifice for the benefit of someone else. John says that is what love is. It is found in the cross. It is found in Jesus Christ. We cannot know what love is until we understand the gospel and we've experienced the gospel. And so I ask you this morning, do, do you, has the gospel been a real experience to you? Do you understand the price that Jesus paid? Do you, do you, have you experienced his love? Do you grasp the atonement of Christ? Do you understand what he did for sinners on the cross? Is that a reality in your life or is it just something that you hear on until you grasp that, you can't know what love is. In fact, until you grasp that, you don't have eternal life promised to you. Until the gospel's a reality to you, until you've repented of your sins, and you love God because he first loved you. So the first characteristic of a godly love is it proceeds from the knowledge and experience of Christ's atonement. And the second characteristic is... A natural reaction to that in, in verse 11 of, of 1 John chapter 4. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. John says it, it, it should just be a natural reaction if this, if this gospel message is real to us, if we've really experienced the love of God, it should be a natural uh, reaction. Okay, John says we ought to. Not many people use that word anymore. I love that word. But he says we ought to, meaning it should come naturally that you love one another, that you love other people that love Jesus. So not only does it proceed from the knowledge and, and experience of the atonement of Christ, the, a godly love naturally loves other believers. It naturally loves other people that love Jesus. John says that should just that should even be a question. And, and, and I think so many times we, we get confused in this because we, uh, we just get in this mindset where it's just us and Jesus, and, and as long as we have this relationship right, well, that's okay. Well, John says, no, 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 that's, that's only part of the deal. You should have a genuine love for those around you. You should have a, a genuine concern for the spiritual health of those around you. Okay, you should have this, uh, this community. Okay, purity is a, is a big part of the Christian life. We should strive to be spiritually disciplined, we should strive for holiness. We should strive for purity. But there's nothing biblical about being a monk. Okay, the monks had that down. I mean, they, they you know, in the early church, they, they, these guys would go out to the desert, live in a cave, so that they wouldn't have any worldly influence and they could be as holy as they possibly could, which I, I have to commend them for that. Okay, they, they truly wanted to serve God by being as holy as they possibly could. But if you look at Scripture as a whole... There's nothing biblical about that lifestyle because they're not, they don't, they're not giving themselves an opportunity to love other Christians. And, and that is how that, that our love for God is most manifested in our love for other Christians. And, and so not only do we have to strive to be you know, the, this uh, a devout follower of Christ, but we also have to be a part of the body of Christ. We should have a genuine love for one another. Let me ask you, when was the last time that you gave a second thought about someone else's spiritual health? When was the last time that you, you thought about someone and said, man, I, I just really want to see them grow in their faith. I really want to see them you know, love Jesus just because I love them and I want to see them have that experience. I want to see them have a deeper relationship with Jesus. When was the last time you thought like that about someone? And I don't mean when was the last time you wanted to hear the latest gossip and know what sin everyone was involved in so that you could be in the know. When was the last time you genuinely wanted to come alongside someone and say, I am here for you. I want to help you. I want to do whatever I can to build you up in Christ, to deepen your relationship with him. We, those are the kind of relationships, that's the kind of love that we're supposed to have for one another. And so that, that is what defines love. It's something that comes from God, comes from the experience and the reality of the gospel in your life, and it's something that manifests itself in our love to those around us. So that is the kind of love that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we'll get to now. <clears throat> that is not 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So Paul starts off this chapter... And he, he's going to question why we do church things. Okay, this is in the context of Paul talking about all these gifts. And, and he is going to question the Corinthians on why are you, why are you doing this? 
Okay, why do, why do we do church? Why do we come here on Sunday? Why do we serve here um, at First Baptist Spearman? Why, why do we do the things that we do? Because if we don't have love at the center of it, then it's in completely useless. And that's what Paul's going to get at in the first three verses of, of chapter 13. He says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul is really bringing into question, he's talking to all these people with their gifts, and he's saying, if you speak in tongues... If, if you have this amazing worship service and, and, and there's people speaking in tongues and everything's great, but, but you have not built anyone up in Christ, if, you have not, uh, if, if no one has been convicted of sin, if no one has been encouraged when, when they were going through a difficult time, if, if no one has gained any knowledge of Christ, if those things don't happen, if your main purpose is not growing your own relationship with Christ deeper, and building up others in their relationship with Christ, if those aren't your two focuses, then all these gifts are pointless. Okay, you just had an awesome worship experience or some emotional experience, and you go home, no one is edified, no one is built up, then everything that you're doing here is absolutely pointless, is what Paul is saying. He's saying, if I have the faith to move a mountain, okay, if I speak to this mountain and I say, move over there, and it moves... And the only thing that people get out of it is how cool I am because I just moved that mountain and God is not glorified and people are not built up in the faith, then moving that mountain was useless. It's worthless. In fact, it's probably sinful because of your pride that was involved in it. And so we translate that to church today. We say, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we... Um, why, why, why do we teach Sunday school class? Why do we lead home groups? Why do we sing in the praise band? Why do we preach? Why, why are we here? Why, I mean, what is our attendance for? What is the purpose for it? Why do we do any of this? Paul says if you're not doing this to deepen your own relationship with Christ and to build other people up, then you might as well not show up because it's useless. Paul said even if I'm martyred, if I die in the name of Jesus, and I'm not doing it to glorify God and to encourage others and to build them up, then my martyrdom is absolutely pointless. And, and so I just want to ask you this morning, ask you to evaluate your, your own heart and ask yourself, why do I do the things I do? Why, why, do I, why do I serve at the church? Is it because I just want to be in charge of everything because it makes me feel, feel good about myself? Is it because I want to maintain a certain social standing and I need, I need to be at church because that's what people expect of me? Is it because your parents want you to be here? Is it because you think that you have to be here because you, know, you don't really love Jesus, but somehow if you do enough religious stuff, you'll probably be good with him? Why do we do the things that we do? What is the heart behind it? Because Paul's saying if, if you're not doing church things, if you're not coming to church, if you're not serving out of love for God because he first loved you and out of a desire to build others up and glorify him and deepen your relationship with him, then it, it's really all worthless. 
We're not doing anything here that matters if we're not, if we're not desiring to glorify God, to deepen our own relationships with Him, and to build other believers up. We should have such a desire for that. You see, there's a difference, and I know this isn't a very popular thought, but there's a difference between the love that we have for the world, for the lost people of the world, and the love that we have for our fellow Christians. Okay, and I know that it's not popular to make distinctions like that in today's culture, but yes, we are to love the lost world. We are. We are to want to see people come to Jesus. We are to have a desire to preach the gospel to everyone and, and, and sincerely have a hope for them to have the gospel become a reality to them and, and Jesus save them. But there's a difference between the love that we have for the lost world and the love that we have for fellow believers and especially believers within our own local church. We should be so, we should be so invested in the lives of our fellow believers in our local church that it hurts us. It, it, it emotionally, maybe even physically, just hurts us to see them May, you know, going down a path that they shouldn't. It, it hurts us to see someone not growing in the faith. It hurts us to see them not taking their faith seriously. We should just have this desire to say, I love you. I want to see you have this vibrant relationship with Jesus. I want to see, I want, I want to have that. I want you to have that. For yourself, I want the gospel to be a reality for you. I want it to consume your entire life. That's the kind of love we should have for one another. That's the kind of distinction between the lost world and us. Yes, we love the lost world, but we should just have this overwhelming desire to see our fellow church members grow in the faith, to see them love Jesus more and more and more every day. That's the kind of investment that we should have, and if that's not what's driving you whenever you're serving here, then you're serving for the wrong reason. If that's not what's in your mind when we're leading team kids or youth or we're doing Sunday school or whatever, if that's not at the forefront of your mind saying, man, I just want to see these people love Jesus. I just want them to, I want them to have what I have. I want them to have this love for God that I have. If that's not the driving force you're not wanting to glorify God and just see these people deepen their relationship with Christ, then your ministry is essentially useless, is what Paul is saying. And I know that could be hard for some of us to hear, but he's that love has to be at the center of it. And then he gets into uh, verse 4, and he starts to explain to us what love looks like. So he, he tells us how important love is. And he tells us it has to be at the center of your ministry. It has to be at the center of everything that you do. But then he also gives us a little more information. He says, when you're loving people, this is what it's going to look like. This is, this is what uh, love looks like when it's manifested in verse 4. He says, love is, kind, uh, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So Paul, he gives us this kind of description of love, and I just want to go through them briefly just to kind of paint this picture of what a godly love actually looks like when it's put into practice. He says... First love is patient. 
Okay, because love proceeds from a knowledge and experience of the gospel, it has an awareness of our individual shortcomings. Okay, because love comes from God and we know God loved us and, and so we love him in return because he loved us, we understand that. So we have patience with other believers because we understand that they are sinners saved by grace just like we are. And so because we know our own shortcomings, because we know how sinful we are and how much we need God's grace, we have patience, or we should have patience, with other believers because we know that they're not any different than us. We shouldn't have you know, a higher standard for others than we do ourselves. We should have patience with our, with our fellow believers. Love is also kind. Jesus has shown us a kindness that is undeserved, and he has given us a respect and dignity that is completely undeserved. Okay, we are rebels, we are sinners, and Jesus has just shown us this compassion, shown us, given us dignity and respect that we do not deserve. And as Christians, we should view the world the way Jesus views the world, because whenever we look out, what we should see are image bearers of God. Okay, all of humanity, everyone, saved or lost, is an image bearer of God. They're made in the image of God. They're made to reflect His glory. Now, are lost people still in this natural state of rebellion? Yes. And we should preach the gospel to them. We should show them Jesus. We should show them the gospel. But we should also show them dignity and respect because they are image bearers of God. They're God's creation. And they deserve the respect and the dignity that God has given them. And so that's the way we should view other peoples with kindness through the lens of Scripture. Love also rejoices with the truth. Okay, The Christian, with a heart after God, loves truth. Okay, we, we have a desire to know what God commands of us. Okay, Whenever we're given our, our heart of flesh and God removes our heart of stone, we now have an, an actual desire to please God. Well, if we want to please God, if we want to obey Him, we have to know what He commands of us. And so the Christian should rejoice with truth. We should have a desire to seek out God's truth. What does God actually say about things? Not just rely on emotions or experiences, but rely on God's truth found in His Word and say, I want to know exactly what God said. I want to know what God's truth is. Not only do we rejoice in truth, but love bears and endures. Okay, some, sometimes your relationships with other Christians can feel more like a, you know, an endurance test. Okay, believe me, I've already hung out with some of you. It's going to be an endurance. I won't mention any names, Mary. Um, <clears throat> anyway, we, okay, this is really in line with patience, okay, because love proceeds from a knowledge and experience of the gospel. We, we have patience with people because we know that they're sinners saved by grace just like we are. But we also endure and bear other believers, even if they're abrasive towards us. Because we know that, yes, we are sinners, too. There's a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I love. That, uh, he, he says, if, if a man curses you, don't be mad at him because you're far worse than he could ever imagine. Okay, ha having a knowledge of the gospel allows us to endure 
the abrasiveness of other Christians because we say, yes, that's extremely irritating, but it's nothing in comparison to how I have offended God. And so when we understand and we grasp the gospel, we have this patience and we have an endurance and we bear the sins and, and the insults of even other Christians because we understand where they are. We understand that they're sinners saved by grace just like we are. And we also understand that they can never offend us more than we have offended God. Love also believes all things and hopes all things. Love, a Christian is never without something to hope for. A Christian is never without something to believe in. I love the end of Romans 8 when, uh, you don't have to turn there, but Paul just gets into this list of things, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God, just like the, the song, your love never fails. Not even death can separate us from the love of God. And so a Christian always has something to hope in, something to believe in, because our, our hope is in Christ. He's already defeated death. He's already defeated sin. He's already defeated all of our enemies. And so we are never without hope. We, we are never without something to believe in. And then, uh, you know, we have the things that love is not. And they go along with the things that love is. Love is not arrogant or rude. Okay, because we have this kindness and respect towards others, because we see the dignity that God has given others, we're not going to be rude to them. We're not going uh, to be arrogant because we know that we have nothing to be arrogant about. We haven't earned anything. God has given us everything. Love does not envy or boast. Okay, if we envy, um, if, if we envy someone, if a Christian is envious of someone else, what we're saying is Jesus is not enough. Okay, if you're saying, I want what that person has, what you're saying is Jesus coming down from heaven and, and being the sacrifice for your sins is not enough for you. You want something else. When we boast, what that says is it says that Jesus was not enough. I had to do part of it. And so if love proceeds from a knowledge and experience of the gospel, then there's nothing loving about envy or boasting or being arrogant or being rude because they don't under, those attitudes don't understand the gospel. Love does not insist on its own way. That can be a difficult one, okay? Um, I mean, I, I know there's never been any fights here at First Baptist Spearman. Um, I trust that. Um, no one's ever argued over anything, right? No one's ever wanted their own way. Love does not insist on its own way because love has its focus on the greater good. Love has its focus on the betterment of the church and everyone in it and not just myself, not just what I want. If I have to give up something for the greater good uh, of the body of Christ, then I'm willing to do that because I have the love of God. And then finally, uh, <clears throat> love is not irritable or resentful. Okay, irritability and resentment, they're signs of regret, they're signs of discontentment, they're signs of jealousy, and, and the heart that loves God has no room for those things. Okay, if you're irritable, it's probably because you feel like you're not getting your way. If you're resentful, it's probably because you're envious also. And so these attitudes, they, they just, there's no room for them in the heart of someone that loves Jesus because we have no regrets. We're just thankful. The only regrets we have are, are, are for how sinful we are. 
But that's overcome by the love that we have for Jesus. And then Paul gets into the final part of this, uh, this chapter in verse 8. He says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest is love. So Paul gets into this last part, and there's kind of a verse in there that seems like it's out of place, because he, he's talking about we know in part, and we prophesy in part, and then you skip down to verse 12, and it says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Those kind of seem to go together, but there's a verse in there that seems like it doesn't fit. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. That seems like it doesn't fit, does it? Paul's talking about, yeah, now we see in part, you know, the, the perfect's coming. Jesus is going to come back. We, we realize all that. Well, then he ta- starts talking about being a child versus being a man And it seems like it doesn't fit, but here's what Paul is getting at. He's saying it takes a level of maturity, okay, when when we're truly filled with God's love, it matures us, and it allows us to see the bigger picture. You see, as children, children can only see like right here in front of their face, okay? They can't see, they can't see the bigger picture. Um, You know, we, we started giving Tucker an allowance, and... It's, we're trying to teach him to see the bigger picture and the importance of maybe saving up his money to get something better, okay? And so you know, we, we make him hold some money out for tithing and stuff like that after his allowance. Well, by the time it's all said and done, each week he has uh, $2.50 that he gets to spend on whatever he wants to. Um, don't judge me. It's just how much we give him. Uh, <clears throat> but the thing is, being a seven-year-old... He only sees like right here in front of his face. He's not thinking big picture. And so when he gets that $2.50, he does one of two things. He either wants to immediately go to the flea market and see what he can find for $2.50 or get on Amazon and see what they have available for $2.50 because he's not thinking big picture. And what we're trying to do, we're trying to explain if you, you know, don't think about the right now, Think about the future. If you save this money up, you could get something nicer, okay? Uh, and, and so we're trying to teach him the bigger picture, but as a seven-year-old, it's difficult, okay? All he sees is, well, I've got this money right now. I need to spend it. Like, there, you know, there may be no tomorrow. Um, and, and, and so he, he's just got this mindset that I, I'm going to, you know, he just lives in the right now. He doesn't look at the big picture. And, and that's something that doesn't come until you get older, Okay? Um, I mean, I, I had some guy call me the other day offering to sell me some kind of retirement annuity. I said, I don't know what that is, but I don't think I need it. You know? We just, I mean, we, we don't, uh, even as adults, we're like, hey, we don't look at the big picture. Okay? I just look at what's right in front of me. And so Paul says what love does is it brings this maturity about us to be able to see the big picture. Because we have to be trained to do that. Okay? I, I know sometimes there's a lot of tension between 
sports and church and things like that, but the truth is there's a lot of good things that come out of kids doing sports or, uh, or band or theater or raising an animal for, uh, for an ag project because what it does is it helps make them realize the big picture, okay? Is if you're, you know, in two days in August and it's hot and you're only thinking about that moment, you'll want to quit. You want to say, well, this is just a really unpleasant experience right now. I don't, I don't like this. But what, it, what playing that sport does is it forces you to look at the bigger picture and you say, if I suffer through this, then I'll get to play on Friday nights. Or, or, and it's the same for, for any, you know, any school activity you do. It teaches you know, a kid that's raising an animal for a stock show, they're not going to want to get up at 6 in the morning and go, you know, go feed their animals. But what, what it does is it teaches them the bigger picture of if you, you, know, if you just do this and, and you... You get through this, then you'll get to go to the stock show, and it helps teach kids about the bigger picture. Well, as adults, for some reason, we you know we turn 18, and you know our parents make us go to college and tell us that education is important sometimes, um, and and so they do all that. Well, then you get out of college and you get on your own, and then no one else is giving you lessons on the bigger picture, and so sometimes we revert back to our childish ways and we forget about the big picture. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying this godly love, it matures us. It gives us this maturity to, uh, to allow us to see the bigger picture. Only Paul's not just talking about life lessons for kids and teaching them how important education and hard work is. He's talking about eternity. He's saying we need to see the bigger picture. Everything that you have right now is eventually going to pass away. He's even speaking to the people with these spiritual gifts. He's saying your gift of tongues is going to pass away. Maybe there's going to come a time in your life where you don't have that gift anymore, or maybe you'll die, okay, you'll pass away, and the gift passes away with you. And we need to apply that to ourselves. We need to understand that all this is going to pass away, okay? These ministries that we have, the youth ministry, the team kids, the Sunday morning services, eventually Christ will return, and, and all of this is going to pass away because the perfect will come. And the question is, what have we done with our time here? Because when, when, when that time comes, when all of this passes away, the only thing is going to matter. It's not going to matter how well we sang this morning. What's going to matter is who understands and grasps and, and has experienced the love of God and, and how we've been built up in this love of God. Okay, those people that spoke in tongues in the New Testament, they didn't get to heaven and the angels were like, hey man, will you speak in tongues for us? They don't care. Okay? No. There's not going to be anybody that comes up to Jay when he gets to heaven and say, man, we've been watching you down there, and could you lead some worship for us up here? Okay? Nobody's going to ask for me to preach a sermon. Okay, the things that we do here, they're all going to pass away when the perfect comes because the only, the only thing that's going to matter is that we are finally forever in the eternal presence of Christ. And, and so when all those pass away, the question is, what did you do with those things? Not how well did you sing, how well did you preach, how, how successful your home group was, how successful your Sunday, class, Sunday school class was. The question is, what did you do with those things? What is the end result of those things? Did people come to know Jesus? Were people built up in the faith? Were, were people encouraged to be devoted, to devote their lives to Christ? What is the, what is the end result? What's the stuff that's going to last? That's why Paul says that, the greatest of these is love. He says, now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, 
but the greatest is love. The greatest is love because it actually deals with eternal things. And, and it deals with things that we manifest in our relationship with others. Love is the greatest because it's what builds others up and it's what lasts for eternity. Okay, there's only two things that you have in this room that are going to last for eternity. Your relationship with God and your relationship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, and I know that may make some of you sad. But yes, okay, the, they will be in heaven with us. That Christian that you don't like will be in heaven with you. Assuming you'll be there. Okay, the, anyone who has faith in Christ, who has repented from their sins, will be in heaven. And so when you look at the bigger picture, Paul says when you're mature, when love has matured you and you look at the bigger picture, you realize the only two things that matter because they're the only two things that are going to last forever. Number one, your own relationship with Christ. We love God because He loves us and we should just be totally devoted to that relationship. We should pour ourselves into that. We should spend our lives serving God because of what He has done for us through Christ. The second thing that we should be focused on is going after everyone else. Being there with our fellow church members saying, man, I, I, I want you to be built up in the faith. I want, you to, I want you to have this relationship with God like I do. Because those are the only two things that are going to last forever. This church building is going to go away. Okay, all of the cool resources that we have, all, all, I mean, everything that we do is eventually going to pass away, just like the gifts that Paul is talking about, because the perfect Christ will return, and then the, que the only question we're going to be left with is, what did, what did we do with all of this stuff that we had? Did we just play around and make ourselves feel better? Or did we actually invest in something that was eternal with this godly love? Because it's easy to make your gifts the focal point. It's easy to make worship about the music instead of about God. It's easy to make home groups about socializing instead of discipleship. It's easy to make church about you and not about God and others. It's easy to make money a means to luxury instead of a means to service. But all that stuff will pass away, and the question will be, what did you do with it? Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, <clears throat> your love for us. We, we thank you that even though we didn't deserve it, even, even though we are the most blessed part of your creation, we, we still rebel against you, and we still murdered the Savior that was sent to us. God, we, we thank you that you have the grace to forgive us. You have the grace to atone for our sins through your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that if that's not a reality to someone here, that you would just move in their heart, that you would change them, that you would transform them and, and just bring them to a knowledge and a love of Jesus Christ, Lord. And I also pray that for those of us that, that are believers, we have a relationship with Christ, we've repented of our sins, and and we are sealed by the blood of Christ, I pray that you just give us a heart that is so devoted to glorifying you, so devoted to seeing you built up in others, seeing others just edified and encouraged in the faith. God, please give us a heart that, that is just totally consumed with that and, and make this a community of believers that is dedicated to one another as we are to you. God, we just thank you again for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.